Turn with me to Psalm 16. And as we go there, I'm going to pick on you, but can you open in prayer for us? You. Amen. Psalm 16. This be the passage we'll study this morning. Before we get into it, let us read through together. I'm reading the English Standard Version, so follow along with me. Psalm 16. <clears throat> Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May the Lord honor the reading of his word. This, this psalm is repeated in the New Testament. It's one of few that are. The most repeated psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. This one's repeated in Acts, and we will go to Acts in a few minutes to see it. But it is a psalm that uh, reflects Christ, and it reflects what David sees that is coming in Christ, in God's sending of his Son, and it has, obviously, the word always has and is always and always will be uh, truth for us today. It's applicable for us today. So this one certainly is very applicable to us today. And I think one of the reasons is, is because Christians are under attack today. And our faith is being undermined. And if you look back in church history, Christians have always been under attack. But we have a, a new wave of attack that is different than anything we've ever seen. 21st century Christians are very much in the minority of this. We've just never seen it in the Christian life. And mainly our attack is from within. It's from within our own homes, our own businesses, our own pockets. The technology age allows the attack to slip quietly and unseen right into the home and is just wreaking havoc within the home, oftentimes destroying souls, destroying families, 
before there was ever even an inclination that something has come in. Last night, as we were driving back from um, River Rock Event Center with the Jacks and the Dravings, my son likes me to tell him stories as we drive down the road. And he likes wild animal stories. That's his favorite. <clears throat> and I don't have any wild animal stories. But he asked me if I'd ever if I'd ever seen a porcupine in person. And I told him I had. I'd seen a porcupine in person. But I'd never hit one with a car because you're not supposed to do that or you're, as he told me, your tires will pop because of the sharp things on them. But we asked about, we, we got into talking about porcupines. And this morning, the attack upon Christians is just like the way God has designed for other animals to take out porcupines. Because you can't take a porcupine on straight on. Because it'll get you. Those sharp quills will go in and they'll work all the way through your, your, the other side of your body if you leave them there. They're very dangerous animals. But the way God's designed it is oftentimes, especially in the snow, a weasel will burrow underneath the snow till it gets up right underneath it. And the underside of a porcupine is very soft. And that's where it goes. And it takes out the porcupine. And that's exactly what's happening in many Christian homes today. You're not getting it from necessarily out here. You don't really see it. But there's this something burrowing underneath and it's coming up. And when it grabs, when it goes for the throat, oftentimes there's no, there's no stopping it. You never saw it coming. The psalmist obviously has some things to say about this. And his day had many different attacks, many different worldly pleasures to allure and distract. But one thing that is always the same, whether they... Those who have gone before us are those that are going to come after us. What's always the same is the human heart and the tendency and desires of the human heart. That never changes. Satan's the master of the human heart. He knows us very well. And he might change the look of the temptation or the allure or the pleasure of the temptation to help uh, refine his attacks. But it still goes to the core issues of our heart. But what is also still true is God is still God. And he has not abdicated his throne. He reigns today as he always will. And he always has. His glory he will give to no other. He is our help and our shield. Our heart can trust in him and be made secure. He is good and delights to do good. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 5. I think much of the challenge of the Christian life... And the understanding of the attack lies in the very nature of the Christian life. You find that in First Corinthians five, second, excuse me, Second Corinthians five, verse seven. <clears throat> For we walk by faith, not by sight. And that is often at the very core of what we battle as, as believers: is we we have to trust and obey. And live out our lives for something that we have never seen, we've never, we've never audibly heard, we've never touched. And here's this allure of the world that you can touch and feel and you get this instant, oh yes, it's right there. There's this instant security. But the question will be, as always, will we trust a God we cannot see or touch? Will we trust that nothing and nothing and nothing is good? Outside of his ways. We must know that we are and will always be under attack. That this world is not our home. We are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. So if we approach the psalm. Go back to Psalm 16. If we approach the psalm this morning. 
Psalm 16, with a warfare type mentality, it'll greatly help us understand what the psalmist is trying to get through to us. And this should always be our mentality, is a warfare type mentality. It helps to distract, keep us from distraction. It strips away all the things that are going to hinder us from running the race well. And it gives us a longing to communicate a need for help with the one we're serving. If you're on the battle lines, if you're on the front lines of a real war and you're in your foxhole, one of the most desperate things you long for is communication with the commander. What's going on in the larger scheme of things? And that's exactly the same way we should be as Christians, is seeking to know in my little foxhole, in my little bubble of a world here, what's going on in the grand scheme of things? How are you controlling the whole battle? How's it going? And are we winning? We know we're winning, but it's not always easy to know. Psalm 16, if we can approach that with this mentality, we approach verse 1 with the mentality that the psalmist approaches, which is this cry, this prayer of faith, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Look at the O God. This would be the Hebrew word for El, E-L. And it means the omnipotent helper. And this is what Christ cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out this, please, where is this omnipotent helper that can save what the situation is going on. That should be the cry of our heart. We're not just crying out God. This is the importance of knowing God's names and why you should know God's names and what they mean because this helps you in your communication with him. If we're crying out this understanding of who we're crying out to, God, that he's the omnipotent helper, there is a difference in how we're crying out rather than crying out expecting him to bless, which he will. But if we're crying out for help, this can help us Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me in my faith. Preserve me from the attacks on my faith. Preserve my thoughts for you alone. Preserve my belief. There is none else beside you. That's what we're asking. For him to preserve us from the attack, from the world that is around us. Now, if we have this thought, preserve me, O God, for in you take refuge, you go to verse 2. And you'll be able to say, I say to the Lord, notice in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you are my Lord, capital L, lowercase, O-R-D, I have no good apart from you. Uh, you could, the, the capital, the all capitals Lord is Yahweh in Hebrew, and all the lowercase is Adonai. And you could essentially trans that ver, translate that verse to say, I say to God, The creator of the universe, the Lord of my life, you are my sovereign. You are my ruler. You are my the controller of my life. You are my own. You see the difference? Many people just cry out to God. Few people cry out to him as their own, their own savior, their own sovereign Lord. And we've got to be able to say that with confidence this morning. Is it the desire of our hearts to let the world know that God reigns and he is our desire above all else. The God of the universe, this is my Lord and that there is no good apart from us. It is only when we as Christians are fully devoted to God's sovereign rule in our life will we be able to mimic the second half of this verse, I have no good apart from you. Many Christians today are struggling with a lack of peace. They're struggling with a lack of contentment struggling with fear, 
they're struggling with anxiety, but oftentimes it boils down to they have not given full control, sovereign control of every aspect of their heart. And so they can't say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because they don't understand and have not given him sovereign rule over every aspect of their life. So oftentimes, uh, go with me to Philippians 4. So oftentimes we pray for peace. It's a pretty common prayer. Oh God, would you, would you bring peace upon this situation? I think we're praying for the wrong thing. Philippians 4. 4 through 9. Watch what Paul exhorts the Philippians to do. And then they get peace. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things And the God of peace will be with you. We normally pray for peace. What we should be praying for is grace to obey. Because notice what you're thinking. Your thinking is the core you. And when your thoughts are to the obedience of Christ, there is peace that passes all understanding. But too often, we look for peace outside of obedience. So we, we look at a hard situation and we say, God, give peace to this situation. What we should be praying is, God, give these people grace to obey you. Because when that happens, they have peace. We're praying. We're praying for the wrong things. Because we're oftentimes not submitted to the full sovereign rule of God in our hearts. And if we are, you get obedience. And if you get obedience, you get peace. Young men, young ladies, you want to know what God's will is for your life? Do what he's commanded you to obey. You will have peace and you will know. You may not know what he's going to do five years down the road, but you'll know what you're supposed to do right now. And you'll be able to do it well because of your obedience to him. Do we truly believe that no good can come from anything or anyone outside of God? That our greatest joy and satisfaction rests in Christ alone. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one one comes to the Father but by him. No sin can provide greater pleasure than obeying and serving Christ. That no book can provide greater insight and wisdom than the Bible. That no conversation can provide greater peace than time spent on our knees in prayer. That the greatest fun, notice what I said, that the greatest fun and pleasurable relationships can be found with the saints, not with the world. If we have God as the sovereign control of our life, we'll be able to say that. And it will be a joy to be able to say it. Now what will be a mark what will be a mark of the Christian that sees that all good is in God? And I think you're gonna, one of the things you're going to see is that they're going to have a love of the fellowship of the body. They have, when you see a man who's truly had a, a heart change, he gravitates to the church. And, and I, I've been given the grace to be in the situations where, we, where I've seen men walk in sin, repent and turn. And when that happens, they gravitate to the body of Christ. 
They desire to be in the church, serving in the church. They love to be with the body. They don't seek to abstain from the body and fellowship with the world. They seek to abstain from the world and fellowship with the body of Christ. Drawing strength from believers to do battle for the souls of the men of the world rather than drawing pleasure from the men of the world and wondering why they have no strength to battle for their souls. We've got to draw. This is where we've got to be. You've got to be in the body of Christ. And in the U.S., in America, really, um, in the world, really, we've been told uh, this lone wolf mentality. You don't need these people. And these people are they're rough. We've got sin. And so don't go rub shoulders with them. Uh, be your own person and you can be your own Christian. No, that's not the way. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you're a body of Christ. And this is where you find a, a, a means of grace. It's a fellowship with the soul. I think Spurgeon said it uh, best when he said, Poor believers are God's receivers and have a warrant from the crown to receive the revenue of our offerings in the king's name. Saints departed we cannot bless. Even prayer for them is of no service. But while they are here, we should practically prove our love to them, even as our master did, for they are the excellent of the earth. Despite their infirmities, their Lord thinks highly of them and reckons them to be as nobles among men. The title of His Excellency more properly belongs to the meanest saint than to the greatest governor. The true aristocracy are believers in Christ. They are the only right honorables. Stars and garters are poor distinctions compared with the graces of the Spirit. He who knows them best says of them, And whom is all my delight? Now the difficulty is, that I think most of the American church, this is not a popular phrase, are not true believers. So you go to church and you struggle with, why are these people lacking? Where's the fervor? Where's the passion? Where's the drive? Where's the love for others, the world, Christ? And, and they, they go elsewhere to find that passion and love and desire for something. Something that moves a man to do something outside of himself. And I think it's because we oftentimes don't true. Uh, many of the church do not truly know Christ. Psalm 16. I love the way. Verse four is said in the New American Standard. So I'm going to read it from there. We, we, we did not skip verse three. Those who truly see no good apart from God will love the saints in the land. They will be the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Here is a warning, a contrast to those of us who would love the saints. If you're not going to love the saints, this is where you're going. Verse 4, I'm going to read it in the New American Standard. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood nor will I take their names upon my lips. Matthew Henry said, They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whosoever thinks one god too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. Oftentimes we barter for other gods in our lives. God, I'll tell you what, I'll give you, I'll give you uh, 15 minutes of Bible reading today, and I'll listen to a sermon, and, and let me have a little bit of this over here. Or I'm going to, I'll go on this missions trip and let me barter and you give me a little bit of this over here. Let me have a little bit of what I want over here 
and a little bit of what you want over here. And we get in this barter mentality. It happens all the time. Or, or we think, you know, boy, I did not watch something good last night. So I better get up tomorrow morning and read my Bible. You're bartering. That's what you're doing. You're saying, oh, oh I'm going to have to kind of even this out. Got to even the scales out of, uh, got to make sure whatever I do over here that's not good, I got to even it out. With just not, that's, not, that's not it. That's not the Christian life. It's either all of Christ or none. You don't get you don't get to barter. And when you're bartering, what you're doing is you're you're believing the lie of the enemy, which is you're doing okay. You're doing okay. You still got you still got Jesus. No, 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 no. He he won't he will not give his glory to any other. He's not gonna sit on the throne and let somebody else sit right next to him. He's gotta be all there or all not. So you're just you're searing your conscience and we've got to be very, very careful. And I, I, I want to appeal to you young people. The, those who are who in the, just all you young people in here, don't don't walk the way many do in the world in the Christian church. Um, don't do it. I, w- I was thinking of, of my son even this morning as he's walking over and thinking about who do I want him to be with today. Well, I, I am grateful for the strong families we're here, but I want my son to be with men. I don't want him to be with boys. Boys, don't be with boys. Go be with men. Don't don't sink to the to the ways of the world. Do not run after the pleasure that is there. Do not do what the world says is fun, appealing, alluring, pleasurable. It's not. It will be for a season, but it will not be forever. Do not run to get the latest movie or game. Do not run to your virtual high and mighty self that exists by the click of a mouse. This is what Ed talked about last week, is that we build these empires virtually of ourselves. And we go there to rule our lands. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It'll all come crumbling down. Do not forsake God for another God, or your sorrows will be multiplied. Love God. Love His people. Dads, you have to model this for your your children. You cannot expect your children to have a love for the church if you don't have a love for the church. And you cannot expect your children to not have a love for the word if you don't have a love for the word. And I remember years growing up and getting up at five in the morning to go to school and finding my dad on his knees on the couch praying for us kids. It gives you an understanding of what is important in his life. And I, I, I met with a dad this week who said, I don't like what my sons are doing. And I said, who does your ch- your boys adore, your, your wife or you? And he said, they adore me. You know what the problem is then? You. You're the problem. Not your boys. You're the problem. Because if they're going to adore whatever you're adoring, then that's you're seeing yourself. Men, we've got to, we've got to set a better example for our, our families. On the other side of that, there's a man that I've been able to work with who has come to Christ. His wife is not. And his love of the local church is drawing her to Christ. Because he gets up at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings to go to church. And she says, oh, no, I just don't want to go today. I'm tired. And he, no, i got to go. I've got to go to church. So what does she do? Climbs out of bed and goes with him. And every, almost every week I hear him say, I've heard him say for the past few weeks, she always tells me at the end of the sermon, thank you so much for taking me. I really got a lot out of that. So men model this. Let's go to Acts 2. This is where Psalm 16 is repeated in the New Testament. And what we have not discussed is that much of Psalm 16, I said it a little bit at the beginning, is uh, David 
seeing Christ. And so as we get deeper into this psalm, especially in the coming verses of Psalm 16, you're going to see parallels with Christ. But Peter, here at his sermon at Pentecost, quotes Psalm 16. And let me, let me read you this, verse 25. So Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he quotes Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to be the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he goes on to talk about David. Now, keep your finger there. Go back to Psalm 16. Stick your finger there. Let me read, let me read 5 through 7 in Psalm 16. Then we're going to, while keeping Acts, Acts 2 open, Psalm 16 open, we're going to go to one place in Matthew, and you'll see how all these things connect. Verse 5 through verse 7 of Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. Okay, so hold your finger there. Keeping Acts 2 open, go to Matthew 26. This is Christ in the garden. Okay, verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Okay, now back to Psalm 16. So do you see the picture of Christ in Psalm 16? This is essentially what is happening in 5 through 7. The Lord meaning God, his father, being his chosen portion and cup. God holds his lot, his will for his life. This is God to Jesus Christ. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, meaning the boundaries. uh, Think of it as a road. You're driving down a road. You have the stripes. Don't go off the stripes. You're into the ditch. His boundaries that are leading him to the cross are indeed a beautiful inheritance. And then he ends with this from prayer, goes to praise, blessing the Lord, meaning submitting to his will. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Do you, do you see this? Do you see Christ in Psalm 16? This is, this is Christ modeling for us as David modeled for us before him. Christ, uh, God being that which, we, that which we long after, that which we delight to have as our goodly inheritance. Before we go uh, to verses 8 through 11, I think we've got to see 
the inheritance that is in Christ as compared to the inheritance of the world. And, and the world's inheritance is going to be wrapped in a real sparkly package. Okay, Very sparkly package. It'll look wonderful. And, and, and Christianity's package, go, go with me to 2 Corinthians 11. It's not a very pretty package. Look at, look at our inheritance as taken on by Paul. Verse 23 of, of 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from many false brethren, from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Here, parents, this is one for a sick night. Though through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the other churches. Oh, by the way, there's just one other thing. All the anxiety that's weighing upon my soul as a pastor for these churches. That's the, the lot, the inheritance of us as believers. But go to 12, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The understanding that our inheritance is not about us. It's about conforming us into the image of Christ. And if that is our view, oh, bring it on. Let it come, if I can but be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse, uh, back to Psalm 16. Before we go to 8 through 11, just the closing section there, I want to comment on verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, also my heart instructs me. And it is... What they're talking about here is this, the understanding being this heart that instructs you is the, your affections and your desires. It's your innermost being. It's who you really are. Deep down within, that which, you, that which drives you. That which is the deepest part of your soul. Okay? Now, with that in mind, I think it is very clear. I don't think it is very clear that in Scripture, an excellent measure, an excellent barometer by which you can measure the character of your soul is found by what you do at night. Very practical. What do you do at night? When the, when the sun starts going down, what do you do? What does your soul long to do when the sun goes down? Look at the woman and the young man in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. It happens at night. Look at the example of Christ praying many times throughout the night. Look at Peter's betrayal. happened at night. The thief comes in the night to steal, kill, and destroy. Every one of us are worshipers. 
and the world knows this, they know that we have to, uh, we desire to worship something. We're created to worship something. And the problem always goes, as we talked a little bit earlier, when we remove from this worship from God, from the creator to the creature, or from the creator to the creation, that's always the problem, is we've got this, we've got this worship disorder. So most oftentimes, the worship is toward, devoted to ourselves. And man, we love ourselves. So we will do whatever we need to do to feed this. And the world knows this. Now, who in here has heard of South by Southwest? It's in Austin. It happens every May. It happens every March. It's going on right now. It's actually ending today. Listen to what a man said this year at South by Southwest. At South by South, South by Southwest Interactive Panel Friday, so two days ago, on health tech companies and how health tech companies can design products that encourage users to change their behavior, Mayfield Fund Managing Director Tim Chang, he is a capital venturist. He's a venture capitalist. Uh, he controls a ton of money and he invests in companies. That's his entire business. He's a young guy, um, came from Silicon Valley. By all means, from what I've done, research I've done, doesn't appear to be a believer. But listen to what he says about who he wants to invest his money in with the understanding that the world knows that we are worshipers, that we are all designed to worship. The way I evaluate a lot of companies now is I look at the design framework. I look at the design framework of the seven deadly sins. He said, if an app or a service does not tap into one or more of the seven deadly sins, either directly or indirectly, it will not be addicting. I always look along those dimensions and see what do those sins trigger. Now, for those of us who, as myself, couldn't remember the seven deadly sins, which are listed in Proverbs and in Galatians, they're lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. Every one of those feed you. You want me to do what I want to do. or I'm going to get angry at you. Look at me. Boy, I'm feeling prideful. All those things feed us. The world knows this. So they design everything to feed that. Because when that's being fed, then you contribute to them money. This is the way it goes. That's the bottom line. Look where the money flows. Wherever the money flows is probably where that's where the most worship is happening. So back to the question. What do you do? What do you enjoy doing at night when it's time to relax Many, and I would include most Christians, go to Hollywood or Facebook because both of those two entities are designed to promote worship or self. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot watch a movie or have a Facebook page, but I am saying that we as Christians should know that neither of those entities are designed, produced, and marketed by Christians or for Christians. They are marketed for the old flesh. They're not marketed for you to be a better believer. So you can get on there. And I'm not saying you can't be on there. I'm saying if you go on there, it's not marketed for you to be a better believer. It's marketed to destroy your soul. So go with a battle mentality because you are walking into battle. I mean, in the heat of it. As, Edward, as Ed Underwood talked about last week, it was a, it's a gigantic number. It's like 70% or more of people that dominate those two entities. Hollywood, Twitter, Facebook are liberals. They're non-believers. They're atheists. They hate God. And they're going to push their agenda and everything they can. So here would be a challenge to you to know whether or not if these two things have taken your affections at night. So which would be your true affections? Worship of you or worship of God? 
These are the things that happen at night. Psalm 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I wouldn't challenge you to this experiment. Next time, maybe it happens tonight. Next time you sit down to watch a movie or get on your Facebook page, before you do this, I want you to take 10 minutes. And I want you to go to this website. www.abort73.com www.abort73.com And then for next 10 minutes, I want you to read what takes place across the U.S. Write down the street in many of our cities. Read about how they rip to pieces the bodies of little children from their mother's womb and call it mercy and love. Read about the murder that happens every day all the time. And by the way, you think we live in a, a conservative state in Texas? We don't. We are the third highest per state in the U.S., of states that have abortions. We have more abortion clinics in Texas than only two other states are above us. And you know who they are? New York, California. We're the third highest, people. We have three. We are the third highest amount of abortions in the U.S. In 2009, we were right up. And nobody's clearly fourth place. I mean, it's way down there. We murdered 77,630 children in 2009, the third most and the U.S. per state. So after that 10 minutes is up, see what you have the desire to do. You have the desire to jump on Facebook? Is that, have the desire to go to watch a movie? Because what you just viewed for 10 minutes is worship of self at its greatest extreme. That's what you just did. You witnessed worship of self at its greatest extreme, which is, I will do whatever I have to do in order to make myself happy. And if I have to murder that which was within, within me, I will do it. Then what do you want to do? That's a really intense, down to the nitty gritty, blood-stained hands, practical exercise. Try it. I think it's going to be really hard for you to do much else but cry and go to the Word. Because it, it, it should rip your soul out. Your heart should be wrenched. Your stomach should just twist in knots. Verse 8 through 11. So here's the key to the rest of the psalm. It lies in verse 8. And there is, there is no man, in closing minutes here, almost done, no man who would ever preach hard enough to try to drive someone from sins to Christ. It can't happen. You can't just say, stop, 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 stop. You shouldn't do this and go do this. It'll never happen. What you have to do is, by God's grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you have to be able to see a greater affection for God than your sin. And that's what I would desire to plead with you this morning, which happens there in verse 8. Do you want to stand firm and not be shaken? Do you want a glad heart and entire body that leaps with great joy? Do you want to fear? Do you want to not fear death or hell to the point that you long for the trumpet to sound? Do you want fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore? And I don't know anybody who wouldn't say, yeah, I would love every bit of that and more. Well, it's found in verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. When you set up the Lord as your sole sovereign ruler of your heart, then all those things happen. You see it in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also will do all secure. There's no fear of Sheol or corruption in verse 10. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. Arise, my soul, arise. The great hymn of faith says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Verse 5, To God I'm reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father Abba, Father cry. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Hebrews 12, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Matthew Henry said, This is the language of a devout and pious soul. Most take the world for their chief good and place their happiness in the enjoyments of it. But how poor soever my condition is in this world, let me have the love and favor of God and be accepted of him. Let me have a title by promise to life and happiness in the future state, and I have enough. Heaven is an inheritance. We must take that for our home, our rest, our everlasting good, and look upon this world to be no more ours than the country through which is our road to our Father's house. Those that have God for their portion have a goodly, inher- goodly heritage. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, and look no further. Matthew Henry. We've got to set the Lord. You see that? Verse 8, set the Lord. We've got to set the Lord as our chief object of worship. Set him as our leader. Set him as our sustainer. Set him as our comforter. Set him as our joy. Set him as our provider. And set him as our Lord. Now, what's some practical application? Just a few things. Three things here in closing. Practical application. Where do, where do we take Psalm 16 and how do we apply it to our lives? Here's the first one. Get involved in the war. It will change your focus and purpose in life if you are a true believer. Take your children. There's two or three or four of them in San Antonio. Planned Parenthood. Those are not all the abortion clinics. Not all of them are Planned Parenthood. Take them down there. Go stand on the sidewalk and let your little children watch mommies with big bellies walk in and tell them what's going to happen. It changes your focus. It changes your purpose. Go, go down to the to soup kitchen. Come with me to Life Dynamics. See families that have just been ripped apart by sin and let your children see where the war is at. Let them understand that we are not in a nice little bubble at home school just because we can be good Christians. It's so that we can be Christians that are light, incredibly bright, incredibly bright light and salty salt in a very bland world. That's why we do this. That's why we abstain from flesh to lust, which war against our soul. First Peter 2. We remove here so that we can go forward. Take them. Take them and get them involved in the war. Number two, be humble enough and bold enough to analyze the affections of your heart by keeping track of how you use your time at night. And just take a piece of paper. And when the sun goes down about six o'clock, just start tracking your time. Last 15 minutes, I talk to the family. Next 45 minutes, I read my emails. Next 15 minutes, we had dinner together. And whatever it is. Just track your time and do that for a couple weeks because after a couple weeks, you'll, you'll break the habit of just trying to keep your track, track of your time that looks good. To just track your time and see what happens. Because, and when you get to the end of a couple weeks, analyze the raw data. And now be bold enough to do it. Be humble enough to analyze the raw data and go, wow, where have I been using my time? Where are my affections? Number three. Get yourself around some Christians who are kingdom focused because it's infectious. When you find Christians who are just, man, they are, they are going and they're moving 
It can be very, it is very infectious to your soul. It encourages you and it pulls you along. Now, if you if you look at these three things, get involved in the war, be humble enough and bold enough to analyze the affections of your heart, get yourself around some Christians who are kingdom-focused. If you don't like the report that comes back on the condition of your heart, then then here's the answer. Go to Acts 2 again. Closing verse here. Acts 2. This would be our... This is what you do. Verse 36. So Peter's done with his sermon to Pentecost at Pentecost. And here's what happens. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Savior, Lord in Christ. This is Jesus. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. As Ed Underwood said last week, repentance is not a bad word. It is a joyous word, a joyful word, because it should be the constant delight and state of our souls to be in repentance from sin. Because as we as we learned in our scripture verse today, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We should be continually repenting of sin because we have a wonderful, merciful Savior, a blessed Redeemer and friend. And it's when repentance, repentance gets hard is when we harden ourselves to repentance. It's when it always gets hard. God's grace is so sufficient, so wonderful, that if your heart is being pulled and, and you, you're convicted, let it go. Go to Him. Don't fight that. Humble yourself. Oh, there's such great love and affection that is there from the Father as He waits and desires for us to come to Him. He is loving. He's always working upon our behalf, always waiting to welcome the repentant back into His open arms. And may we and you and us Experience that deep and abiding love this coming week. So I encourage you in Psalm 16, find your greatest passion and affection and joy in Him and let the world be the world. Don't let the world be that which we are named with. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are great, grateful for your graciousness to us. Oh, Father, we thank you for your Son sent to this earth to die and, you, and in his death you provided for us a wonderful heritage a wonderful inheritance a wonderful cup that we can we can drink of daily and may you give us the grace this week to not drink of the world not drink of the world's pleasures to have the the humility and the courage and the boldness to forsake all else, but that we might know you. That we might have more about Jesus as our testimony. More about you in every aspect. That you alone would reign as sovereign and supreme ruler on the hearts of each individual here. Father, we are so great, grateful for your love for us and your mercy that is, that is new and every morning and evening and afternoon. And that as, as we would seek, Lord, to be in, 
to grow in conformity, to grow more like you. And as we as we realize uh, in, in greater way each day through the the word revealing in our hearts, the true nature of our hearts, as we as we see that Lord that that mercy that is so abundant, that grace, that love, you you're waiting there to draw us. You want us to come back, and it's not you that has gone silent. It's us that have drifted away from you. So may we, like the prodigal son, be continually running to your arms to be embraced and find that great wealth of forgiveness and and hope and strength and joy to live our lives in obedience to you, that we might have that peace that passes all understanding in a world that is, there's so much turmoil. Lord, may we be warfare-minded believers this week. May we engage deeply in the in, in the rescue by your by the power of your Holy Spirit and the rescue of souls from hell, that we would stand firm at the gates there and call them back, pleading with them to know Christ. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity that we have today to be together as the body, to be strengthened for that that battle that happens every day, every moment. Father, I pray now as we would prepare to go to the second service that you would. Uh, continue to minister to our hearts through your word and that we would be prepared in an even greater way for worship, corporate worship happening in a few moments and again the preaching of your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.